seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, as we look at verses 33 through 43 this morning. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus in general, and specifically the story at the end of the passage about the one thief on the cross. The thief on the cross who came to know the Lord Jesus and was gloriously saved on that day. Today is the final Sunday of the Christian year and calendar. The next Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. And this final Sunday has often been called by some traditions Christ the King Sunday as we anticipate and celebrate the arrival of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the upcoming Advent season. In summary, this Sunday serves as an ending and a beginning. We conclude the annual cycle of Sundays and we begin a new year according to the Christian calendar. And our sermon text for today serves as an ending of sorts and a beginning. We find three individuals, the Lord Jesus, in the middle of two criminals, two thieves, and their lives are coming to an end. However, we know the rest of the story. Because the Lord Jesus will rise again three days later. And one of these thieves will become a child of God, to live with Christ forever. So in one sense, we have an ending at Calvary, but in another sense, we have a new beginning, a fresh start, especially for the thief who professed faith. Life on earth is, earth is coming to an end for these three. There's a glorious beginning. And I'd like to focus our attention on that for a few moments this morning as we think about this Christ the King. Sunday. You'll notice all three of your readings mention something of Christ's kingdom. In Jeremiah, the Lord God said, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch through David, and he will be king. And his name will be our Lord is our righteousness. Who could help but think about Christ and him dying on the cross and surrounding us with his righteousness? The Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 that the Lord God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and of course, in this passage, Jesus is hailed and mocked as the King of the Jews, which is exactly who he is, the King of so much more. And so I'd like to go through this passage this morning and then Look at the specifics of this thief on the cross and some things, some beautiful things that happened in his life while he was there suffering with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would illuminate our minds, that we might understand all that you have to say to us in a sacred scripture this Lord's day. 
<clears throat> so, Lord, bless us now. As we study together, we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice in verses 33 and 34, Christ is crucified with these criminals. But he lovingly and graciously says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Our Lord was gracious and kind to sinners all the way to the cross and while he was on it. In verse 35, we see the religious leaders sneering at Jesus and saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They didn't really mean that. They didn't want Christ to save himself. They didn't want him at all. They wanted him to die. Verses 36 and 37, we see the soldiers mocking Jesus as they gambled for his clothing and said to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then Luke records in verse 38, he reminds us of this inscription above the Lord Jesus, which said, This is the king of the Jews. The king, the Lord Jesus, had come. And he will be establishing a kingdom. He has always been king before time. And he will reign as king. Now, in verse 39, we come to the account of the two thieves. Luke brings us into the conversations taking place between them as they're on the cross. The one in verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Now this thief's words were hurtful and abusive. In fact, the Greek word used there is the word we get our word, blaspheming. He was blaspheming the Lord Jesus. This man was one of two things. He was selfish at best, or just cynical at worst. We can't crawl into his skin or his mind and try to feel or read what he was thinking. But since he was blaspheming, he clearly was a very selfish and cynical man. His only concern was deliverance from his immediate problem. He had no interest in Jesus' identity or the salvation he offered. You know what strikes me about that is that's the way a lot of evangelicals are at times. Jesus, get me out of this mess. We become so short-sighted that we lose sight of why Christ was there to begin with, why he had to die. It goes beyond my need for an A on the test. It goes beyond my desire to have healthy relationships. It goes beyond me finding my purpose in life. No. We can go through life and be selfish, just like this man was. His only concern was deliverance from immediate trouble. If he wasn't selfish, he was certainly cynical. He was criticizing and taunting and making Fun of Jesus. And whether he's being selfish or cynical, he was blaspheming either way. It's just as sinful to be demanding with Jesus as if he were your, a slave or bellboy as it is to dismiss him altogether. And that's what cynics do. So often we can have such a wrong view of the Lord Jesus. And it really is wrong when you look at the contrast between this man's selfishness or his cynicism, his demands of Jesus and his mocking of Jesus, 
When you look at this guy, you realize this is a tragedy unfolding. He expresses no thought of God, no guilt, no repentance, and no concern for forgiveness. And that is the exact opposite of the other criminal, the other thief that we are introduced to in verse 40. And I want you to notice four things this morning about this second thief on the cross. Number one, he acknowledged the presence of God in verse 40. He acknowledged the presence of God. Look at verse 40 with me. But the other answered, that is the other thief, and rebuking him, that is the first thief, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Somehow, through the sovereign hand of God, this man was facing death. This man who was facing death becomes aware of the presence of God. He says to his fellow thief, Do you not fear God? You know, this is more than merely believing in the existence of God. The Bible talks about the fear of God. It talks about reverence. And it's a result not just of the existence of God, but of the very presence of God. You're stricken by His presence as He sovereignly revealed Himself to this man. There's a common expression among the people of God in the Old Testament. We shall die, for we have seen the Lord. Who could forget Isaiah 6, chapter 5, when Isaiah was in the temple? And he saw that marvelous vision of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Later on, Isaiah says in chapter 24, verse 23, The moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign. It's an awesome thing to be in front of the living God. And this man, somehow, some way, the Lord broke through all of the chaos and confusion of this pivotal moment in human history, and he disclosed his awesome presence to this thief on the cross. Interesting, the other two Gospels say that both thieves were hurling abuse at Christ. Luke is the only one that tells us that perhaps after a little bit of time, one fell silent, and something happened in his life. And he began to realize and put two and two together that there was something so much more going on in this pivotal moment in history. It shows us that God is sovereign in salvation. Both of these thieves went through the same experience. Both of them are on the cross with Jesus, but one responds to him while the other rejects him. This man acknowledged the presence of God because God himself made it known to him. Now I want you to notice the second thing, and that is, he acknowledged his sin and guilt. Look at the first part of verse 41a. After he says, do you not fear God to his fellow thief, indicating his own fear and reverence of God, he says, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This man gives a full acknowledgement of his guilt and sin. He knows of his own guilt and corruption. He has no argument against the consequences of his behavior. Unlike the other thief, he's not demanding 
He doesn't feel like he's owed anything. He's getting exactly what he deserves. You know, John Calvin, the theologian, makes it clear that in his first chapter of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, that knowledge and awareness of God leads to an accurate and clear knowledge of self. What happens that way? We always have a high estimation of ourselves until we come into contact with the presence of God. And that has a tendency to shrink us and expose to us who we are. Listen to the words of John Calvin. Quote, So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtues. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demagogues. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being He is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which, as a standard, we are bound to be conformed, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest sin. John Calvin said, if you want to know yourself, look at God. And if you want to know the beauty of God, look at yourself. If you look at ourselves, we see the pollution and the sin. And when we stand next to the standard, which is Jesus Christ, we begin to realize how far short we fall. And that's what the Bible teaches, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand guilty in our sin. Well, he acknowledged his sin and guilt. The Lord God made his presence known to him, and as a result, he acknowledged his sin and guilt. There's humility here, not pride. There is a sense of mercy, not entitlement. And then notice he looked to faith in Jesus Christ. He looked to Christ in faith. In verse 41b and 42, he says after 41a, we're suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve. But in verse 41, he says that this man, meaning Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's happening here? Well, two things. One, he acknowledged Christ's innocence in 41b. And then he exercised faith in Christ to save him. He acknowledged Christ's innocence. The thief experienced something akin to a spiritual awakening. You know, this thief made observations, I'm sure. He'd seen the meekness of Jesus as he was led to the cross. This man heard Jesus' prayer of, for the executioners. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that prayer, Jesus had addressed God as Father with unheard of intimacy. And most of all, there was the obvious contrast between the holiness of Jesus and his own crimes. This thief on the cross gazed at the Lord Jesus. And this awakened in him a beautiful posture of grace. Why was Jesus on that cross to begin with? Because when the perfect God-man invaded time and history, you would either be drawn to him or repelled by him. A perfect, sinless son of God forces the issue for human beings to come to grips with their own sin. 
And as a result, there's no neutrality. We either run toward Jesus or we repel him and run away from him. Often in our own self-righteousness. That's what the Pharisees, the chief priests, teachers of the law were doing. They were running from Jesus and they wanted to do away with Jesus. But this thief acknowledged Christ's innocence. He took a long look thought about who Jesus is. And somewhere in that man's mind, and in this moment, once again, the Spirit of God began to move on this man's heart. And from this sense of knowledge of Christ's innocence, we move to verse 42, he exercised faith in Christ to save him. In those moments on the cross, he had become profoundly humble. He began to experience the bankruptcy of spirit that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He knew he had nothing to commend himself to God. And in this spirit, he turned to address Jesus, who he had concluded was the Messiah, the king of a coming kingdom. It takes a lot to acknowledge a king who is on a cross. But I believe supernaturally the Lord moved in this man's heart as a result of realizing Christ's innocence. He saw his own depravity, his own corruption, and he realized he needed a Savior. He needed a King over his entire life and heart. In his spirit, he turned to address Jesus, who had concluded was the Messiah. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, remember my works. Remember how much I gave. Neither did he say, remember that I align myself with you in your death. He had nothing to commend himself. All he said was, remember me. He asked for mercy. That is all any of us can do. I read publication of the day. It had the dying words of the uh, devout astronomer Copernicus. Listen to these words when he was dying. He said, quote, I do not ask for the grace that you gave St. Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter. But the mercy which you did show to the dying thief, that mercy show to me. It's a beautiful picture. Because when we get in the presence of the living God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our righteousness, like Isaiah says, look like a filthy rag. And all we can do is ask the Lord for mercy. And that's all that is necessary. Because you see, fourthly, and lastly, he was gloriously saved. One thief asking for mercy. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's just like the Lord Jesus to do exceedingly beyond all that we could ask or imagine, as Paul says in one of his epistles. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The word translated paradise is paradisos. It bore the root meaning of a garden. It came to represent the future bliss of God's people. The New Testament writers used it two other times as a symbol of heaven and its bliss. 
You remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 when he was talking about he was caught up into the third heaven. And he said he was in paradise. And he heard things that no man is permitted to speak. John also makes reference of it in Revelation 2.7 as the, the paradise of God. Jesus moved in this man's life immediately and thoroughly as a simple result of him saying, Lord, remember me. Please remember me. Now, one thing puzzled me this past week. I don't know all the reasons why Christ used this kind of language. He could have said, today, you will be with me in heaven. Today, you will be delivered from your sin. Today, you will avoid hell and gain everlasting life. There are a lot of things the Lord Jesus could have said. But he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Whenever we think about paradise, we think about the Garden of Eden. We think about a time before the fall. A time before sin entered into the world. And one of the beautiful things about the Lord Jesus is when he saves a sinner, I think because this man needed him so badly, and this man was the worst of the worst, crucifixion was always reserved for the most woe-begone criminals. I believe the Lord Jesus was communicating to him, today you will be in heaven, and today is a fresh start and a new beginning. I'm taking you back to the garden. Let me put that in practical terms. There are so many Christians I run into after 30 years of ministry. And they can believe in their head and believe in their heart that they're forgiven of their sin, that God has wiped it away as far as the east is from the west, but they walk around as if still guilty. They walk around with thoughts and memories of the things that they did that they don't ever want anybody else to know. Those sinful acts that they can hardly forgive themselves for. And yet we miss so much because the Bible says to be in Christ is to be a new creation. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, at the end of that chapter, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Nobody in history had more of a guilty conscience than the Apostle Paul. He'd known the things that he'd done. He would hunt down Christians to kill them or force them to blaspheme. But you see, right after chapter 7, where Paul said, Wretched man that I am, as he described this ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit, he went on in chapter 8 to say, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was living out what he said. I haven't just changed as a Christian. I have become a part of the body of Christ. I am clothed in His righteousness, and I am seated with Him in the heavenly realms. And the person you see now is really a person who has lost his life, and the Lord Jesus is living His life through me. There is no condemnation. 
And you think back in your history, and you think back of those cankerous things that keep coming to your mind, you take that to Jesus. He is so sensitive and so loving and careful that he would take this man who had more sin than anybody else, perhaps. He took him back to the garden, and that's exactly where he takes you when he cleanses you of your sin. Going back for a fresh start and a new beginning. And when Satan comes as the accuser of the brethren, you remind him and you remind yourself that I have died and my life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And I've been raised above his accusations and seated in the heavens. I'm forgiven of my sin for good and forever. May we all look to Jesus as we anticipate the Advent season. May we all acknowledge and confess our sins freely and openly to Him and repent. And may we welcome Him into our lives by faith. And may the King of kings and the Lord of lords be both King and Lord over our hearts. You see, the Lord Jesus truly is a Savior and a friend of sinners. Because He takes us back and not only wipes away all of our sin, but He gives us a fresh start and a new beginning so that all the past is gone. Do you know that joy and grace today? Have you become a part of the body of Christ by, just like this thief, trusting the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I pray you do that today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this marvelous story. And we thank you, Lord, that truly you are a friend of sinners. Lord, you come to us not only to deliver us from all of our sin and guilt, but you rewind the tapes of all the pain of all the past. And we are indeed a new creation in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts today. That, Lord, you would impress upon the minds of those who suffer year in and year out, even though they seek and strive to follow you. But, Lord, they're filled with guilt and shame and disgrace. Lord, remove all that today. Lord, if there's one here that has never known you, I pray that there would be an openness and a willingness and a grace expressed in their lives to move toward you and to humbly petition you. Lord Jesus, remember me. Save me that I may join you in your kingdom. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and the glory and the honor as you move through the lives of your children by your word. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.